Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello and welcome to another Word in Your Ear. Uh, th- this time we're going to we're going to travel back to the we're going to travel back to the days of the British blues boom. We're going to travel back to the days of musicians wanted ads in the Melody Maker. The days of amusing yourself before gigs by counting the amplifiers. The days of no time wasters. The days when you got changed in the chip shop to the slightly more luxurious surroundings of playing in the no-expense-spared uh, circuit of the Enormo Domes of America with Whitesnake. The book is Where's My Guitar, which has been described by Joe Bonamassa as a fantastic document of a time and place we won't ever get back again. He's right. But we, but we can do something about that right now and welcome the author of this book, Bernie Martin. Bernie, how are you? Good one. How are you? I'm very, very good. good. We're fine. We're fine. Where do we find you? Uh, I'm in uh, Buckinghamshire on the uh, Bucks North, uh, Northampton, Oxfordshire border, really. I live near Buckingham. Which is, which is where you were brought up, wasn't it? Isn't yeah, it? yeah. You were brought up a little bit yeah, outside Buckingham, and there's lovely bits about, uh, you remember, vegetables and milk being delivered by horse-drawn carts. It's fantastic. It's true. It's true. You were 51. What are your memories of the place? Uh, just of being in a very small rural town, and, and I'm, not, I'm thinking it doesn't get any bigger than the town hall once I've discovered uh, artists and stuff. I'm dreaming of playing there, and, and then getting a whole tour of the local village halls and stuff like that. But that that's that was going forward a bit. I just grew up as just a normal, you know, you know, junior school, primary school kid in in, in Buckinghamshire, and uh, and then along came the Beatles, and uh, I picked up a guitar. So that was uh, the start of it. So that's why I tra- I've kind of kept that part of the book to so people could relate to being me, maybe in those days as well, in you know, in the fifties and sixties, because to be a yeah, you, know, you say to anybody, even much later, you know, well, what are you going to do when you leave school? I say, well, I'm going to play the guitar. And it was a great source of comedy to people, you know, but uh, <laughs> I'm to get away with it. 
Who were so the who, first guitar heroes then that you remember seeing? Uh, without a doubt, Hank Marvin, um, because he was the man, one of the few people you saw on TV with a guitar. And then uh, once I got into playing it uh, for sure, I suppose, I mean, uh, there's only one main influence, and that's Eric Clapton, which is pretty much all of us with that, you know, the Yardbirds into the Blues Breakers thing. And because of him, we all got to discover the other guys, you know, then along came the Jeff Becks and Jimi Hendrix, and through them you could discover the blues guys where they got their influences okay. from. And, uh, try finding a Freddie King album in Buckingham when you're 14. Possibly difficult. Let's go back. What was the first guitar you got? Uh, my parents, bless them, they managed to... Well, so I could, a cousin of mine had a guitar, and I, I must have made some kind of decent noise on it because I must have uh, gone on about it for a few weeks or whatever. And they did source me a guitar. And to this day, I, I, I never did really ask them where it came from, but the guitar did arrive and said, this is this is for you. And, you know, thinking, well, I think it was a let, let him get over it and leave it in the corner, and then we'll never have to put up with this noise again. And then I, I think I always cut to the chase, really. But I think I played the theme from... I think it was either Coronation Street or Zed Cars or something. <laughs> and I played, I said, I can play this. And, and when I couldn't, it was pretty cool. But both of them, I can remember their eyes going like, wow. And the moment I saw their eyes widen, I said, can I have an electric guitar, please? And that was the deal with my dad. Then, you know, well, look, you've got some pocket money. You know, you do a paper round and all the, all the usual stories. And we put it when we went to the very, I didn't realize at the time, that uh, maybe I did. Selma's in London because I had a family in London and I went on the 24 bus and I saw Selma's shop from the bus side. I got off the bus. I was only about 13. In the Charing Cross Road? Yeah. 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 Which is where Eric Clapton everybody bought their equipment, didn't yeah. they? I didn't know that. And I have gone in there yeah. and there's this 13-year-old squib from Buckingham, you know, looking at 150-pound guitars saying, oh, I quite like one. Can I test this one, please? But they never threw me out. They were always great. And a few guys... You know, much later on, after I turned pro, was still around, and they, they sort of said, "Well, don't, you know, do you, you don't remember me?" I said, "No, but there were a lot of kids like you who are now you know, doing pretty well." And right. um, it, it was really a, a sweet, innocent time, really. So there was something about the kind of uh, the shine on the on the window of a of a music store, wasn't there? That was, yeah. it was kind of otherworldly, wasn't it? Those, I, I had those... never seen um, real. American guitars in the flesh until that that day on the bus. I've seen them on TV. I've seen them in a melody maker or in magazine. It probably wasn't even melody maker in those days. But you'd seen them on TV, and and to think that we well, used to see a Fender Stratocaster close up and then he actually touch it was was quite something, you know. And only not that long after the, you know, the regional shop started to stop because it wasn't easy even to get stuff in those days because there was a. A heavy purchase tax on the yeah, there was. Yeah, you know, we're really getting back now. I don't think I'm quite that old, but it, I know, no, no, but you but did, Hank affect, did affect the prices. Hank Marvin's was the first Stratocaster in this country, wasn't it? Because I believe it was, so, it yeah, was ordered yeah. mail order because it's the only way but you could get the, them. The controversial one because is it Hank's, is it Bruce's, or is it oh, oh, is C? Oh, okay. Oh, do they still this is new? <laughs> <laughs> I've talked to them all over the years about it and every one of them sort of says yeah yeah it's definitely clips but i'm keeping it 
Oh, it's, it's, I think Bruce has got it, and then long may he reign to do so. Because oh, I think it was the first one. Cliff paid for it, didn't he? Yeah, that, yeah. that was the deal. Yeah. Yeah, they they had, a, had a, the catalogue, said, get the most expensive thing. They had moment. a bloody holy in the crickets album, and they said, yeah. we want one of those, and there's the strap. But they got the wrong one, the wrong colour came. So that was what happened. And people used to go to their gigs just to stand there and look at it, didn't they? I mean, it was a, yeah. it was a major, major thing. Oh, I would think that. I can remember doing that, just standing at the front of a, you know, like a 12-inch a stage, and there the guy would have left his guitar. No guitar stands in those days. We propped up against them, and I'm just looking at it. Just, and people come and say, come on, come and see now. I say, no, I'm just looking at this. You know. <laughs> Tell us about some of the groups that you're, you're they're, they're, they're lovely. The, the James Watt Compassion. What was that all about? I, I, yeah, that was that was one. Uh, well, Clockwork, Clockwork Mousetrap is very of the times. I had nothing to do. Probably alarm clock. Is I, was, that I was a fifteen-year-old guitar player, and they decided to change their name to the Clockwork Mousetrap and paint the van to suit. And yeah. uh, I was hor- even then. I was quite horrified. And you were playing, was it um, Silence is Golden and Bee Gees covers? And then there was some issue where you were instructed to wear a certain stage gear, which was yeah. the point where you left them out. What, yeah, what, yeah. what did they want you to play to wear? But Silence is Golden was was a big, big record. I, I mean, nowadays I realise what a great song it is, yeah. you know, Four Seasons. Yeah. I wasn't aware of all that. But I, it was always on the TV with, um, uh, what were they called, uh, Oh, the tremolos. The tremolos, yeah. yes. It seemed to be every band that I was in from 13 to 16 wanted to play it because <laughs> they, people wanted it because it was a hit, I suppose. And I just grew to hate it and stuff. And, and all these other songs that would crop up, there's somebody, someone would play to me something like Rave On by Buddy Holly or something. So well, why can't we, that's a Buddy Holly song, why can't we do that? And then they would say, no, no, it's not a hit. And that would, that would be the reason why you couldn't. I mean, the other songs, I, I don't know really. Some of them were... I just learned to play them and insisted on playing them. I mean, even if I had my own spot in the bands I was in when I was 15 or 16, I played them pretty badly, but at least I get a chance to play them. So it was good. Mm. So so eventually, I mean, your personal interest was the kind of, I suppose, what became the blues boom, you know, that we, yeah. those of us who remember it, it was probably didn't last that long, but it was hugely influential at yeah. the time and you you were in um tell us about your group skinny cat and the and their experience of the blues boom skinny skinny cat was was at the end of that period really and that was the first local band that i had that i, I more or less became in the same control of but i was the kind of center point of it when i joined the band there was other people who suddenly left and i ended up singing instead of the singer and no, the horns went and some something else went, and they said, "Well, you can do that." And the rhythm guitarist he got jettisoned as well. And it was, and I thought, "Well, I can do this probably." And then somebody said, "Well, can you do it?" And I go, "Yeah." It wasn't a made of taking over; it was just one of those ordinary things. But it was at a time when you know this glorious time, wasn't it, when you could look at the melody maker and and say, "Well, Friday we'll go and see Hendrix, Saturday the Cream, Fleetwood Mac on," and they said, "Well, we saw Fleetwood Mac two weeks ago. Come and see somebody else," you know. <laughs> and just work out, and that was a drive from locally from around here. And the, the, the big gig around here for me was uh, the Dunstable California Ballroom. Oh, yes. And I saw Fleetwood Mac there, many of us saw Freddie King there. I, I just, and it was 40 minutes away, you know, all piling in one of the guys' minis. And I mean, so that was a, an eye opener. And I think I saw Chicken Shack there one night uh, with the guys. And I, I'd auditioned for a couple of people at the 
the time and, and sort of got the gigs, but it was the melody maker was great and everything, but he never told you who the band was you're auditioning for. It rarely said, uh, you know, uh, the Storm seek lead guitarist. It was like lead guitarist needed for name band with work. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And you go, maybe we'd like to offer you the gig, and you say, uh, who's the band? And one of those bands was East of Eden, and, and I said, oh, I don't really think that's me, really. And, and Jeff Allen, bless him to this day, is, always said to people, they were arrogant little soddy, was, he came up, came up for the gig, got the gig, and turned it down. Uh, so you, you went for it, you, you actually did an audition with East of Eden. East of Eden, famous yeah. for... And they had Barbus, a, the yeah. violin player, yeah. played the violin on uh, the Who won't go full. Uh, was yes. I, I, I can't remember one Who yeah. song. Yeah, and they had one hit. Yeah, and you, and you, they they said thank you. You can join. You said no thank you. Yeah, it was like well, you know, well, when you discovered who they were. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> I think another one was, and they were really great people. Was uh, was Renaissance. Oh yes, and, and and that was I mean, but. I was, I was listening yeah, to kind of medieval people. folk rock band with it. Yeah, it wasn't actually my, exactly my thing. And you'd play with these guys. One of the other guys in the band was a great piano player called John Hawkins, who was in the Nashville team. Yeah. So we're oh, jamming in the yes. afternoon, and I'm playing, playing, doing my, you know, doing my Freddie King impression the best I can and stuff, and playing as bluesy as whatever I can. And then he was into it. He just, ah, you played great, mate. You know, we're going to have some fun. I said, oh, you lost the band call. He said, oh, it's Renaissance. Oh. I get, I get, coat. I get my coat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why didn't you say earlier? <laughs> There's not a lot of time. Subsequently, <laughs> I realised, you know, what a nice, decent prog rock band that they were, but it really wasn't, for me at the time, it was just like a non-starter. So Skinny Cap, we're in on the end of that blues thing, and, and then we could go and see Fleetwood Mac, and then every time you saw somebody, and you go, well, you know, in your dream of dreams, that's that's that was your level, right. and to see Peter in his prime. And I went to see them at Dunstable, and um, uh, Danny Kerwin, I think it was his second gig or something, and I wanted to hate hate him so much because he was the same age as me, even a bit younger, I think, and he was in Fleetwood Mac, and I, and I came out of that gig, and he was so good. I just came out thinking, yeah, you better up your game a bit if you want to do this. So Skinny Cat became the springboard to go into being a pro, and I joined UFO. From what skin. levels did you go to, to to imitate those kind of people? Because Eric Clapton, a lot of it was about the clothes he wore. I mean, did you go yeah. buy the same stuff? And- I bought a pair of tough towel shoes after I read that you wore them when I was about 16. <laughs> you know, t- tough towel shoes, I remember that. Uh, I think they were just school shoes, really, but I remember that he might, somewhere he'd written, so I thought, well, you know, maybe, one of those things, maybe I can play a bit like him, I've got the same shoes. I mean, he did the same thing. We saw Hendrix, didn't he? You know, maybe I could play a bit like him. I've got my hair like him. Well, that was the interesting thing about all those yeah. guys, is yeah. they all kind of had a gimmick, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. Well, stand, <laughs> stand by a uh, chicken shack, you'd have the really long... Oh, yeah, the 30-foot lead went out into the audience to play. Yeah. Yeah. the street and play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scaring the children. Sorry, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I was... I think it was at Dunstable one night. I think we were watching Chicken Shack. And I think they were maybe even backing Freddie King. And um, I was... Raving on about Stan, and what, what, I thought what a great guitar player he was. And I think it was the bass player or the drummer in my band, Skitty Cat, said, Well, you're as good as that. And I'm looking at the pro, you know, from the outside of the stage. And it really hit me afterwards that Mark, the guy with me, who was in my band, said, Well, you could be doing that for real. And it was quite a profound moment, really, when I look back on it afterwards, because I, 
even I wanted to do it was like leaving that band. I mean, Mike Vernon came to see Skinny Town, and I got a nice letter from him saying that you know you're, you're pretty good, kid, but the band ain't going to make it. And I did want to show them that letter because you know, there was a there was our band, and you know you try and stay tight to it at the time. So I kind of knew at some point I'm gonna I was gonna have to make the, the jump myself. And UFO came along, and uh, uh, that was where it all began. But you also went to see Mike Vernon, didn't you, I think, to try and get a publishing deal? Is that right? Well, well, that, was same, that was the same time, really. Yeah. He was one of the few, and I, uh, to, to credit to, to this day, but who from London, you know, uh, in the real settings of what I was working in, he did actually come up, I think it was to a gig in Northamptonshire, to see the band live. He thought we were good enough to, you know, the tape was good enough to come and see us live. And afterwards he just said, I think, you know, you're, you know you've got loads of, promise and potential but i think the band are a little bit behind you kind of thing right. so i never got anything maybe i should, should have took that like, i might have been danny kerwin at the time I don't know. <laughs> and, but it was going into that situation though and i went i went to app to apple as well in Savile Row with the same tapes really and they were really sweet they were just when i look back now you think about it it was a fantastic time and it was crazy in there. It was crazy. And when I look back now, I think just the fact that I went there is... So you just turned up at Apple? Yes. Yeah. With the tape? Yeah. Did and you see went... anybody you recognised? Derek Taylor or George Harris? Oh, well, well, I saw James Taylor because... James he, Taylor, of course, he was... That's why he was signed. very hard to miss. Yeah. The wall guy, you know. And I, and I, but I knew him from um, uh, his early earlier music only because of his appearance, really. And we had a very, very brief word. And you know, he said, you know, I'm in a band. I've got my, got my quarter-inch tape. And he said, oh, these guys are really good, you know, because he had been signed by them. And I was, I was He was taking, the only person, wasn't he? I think so, yeah. And the guy that kept my tape, and one of the very few times that it happened, they made a copy, a cassette copy or something of my tape and said, you'll hear from us, you know. And I don't think I ever did, but I never experienced anybody taking the tape away, except for uh, when I went to DJM. And uh, the very person who took my tape away that day was none other than Elton John. <laughs> and you couldn't make that up, could you? No. Yeah. Was there any response from him? Did you ever hear what he thought of it? No. I mean, but it, it, it was a fantastic bloke. Uh, and I've never seen him from that day to this. But he took me to a, uh, he took me out. He, he felt sorry for me, I think, because I sat waiting to see... Uh, well, I thought Dick James, but it turned out to be Stephen James. All oh, right, yeah. But I think yeah. I had an 11 o'clock appointment. You can imagine, I'd gone up from Buckingham in the morning and all excited. And But I knew about Elton John because Lady Samantha was pretty much hot on the radio at the time. And he looked a character at the time. He came in, he had denim mm. stuff, he had patches all over him and stuff like that. But he walked, because he worked, I think, in those offices. Well, I know he did. And he walked by and he said, You've been here for ages. Who you, um, I'm here to see Mr. James. And he went, Mr. James, he's not here. And I said, oh, and I, yeah, I must have seen me face go like, oh. You know. And he said, I'm, get, look, I'm just going off my coffee break. He said, uh, do you want a cup of coffee? And he, uh, the first real cup of coffee I think I had in my life was with him at the Giaconda in uh, Oh, coffee. that's bad. So in, it was uh, not instant coffee. It was proper coffee. Was that, yeah. Yeah, and he and he he paid for it as well. And I said, oh, I've got, I mean, I've got. Now I said, we'll put that down to making um, uh, uh, Stephen James uh, make you wait. And it was oh, great. 
it was it was fantastic. I've never, I've never had a chance to thank him ever since, except I do in the book. But it was really, you know, but it was a, to me, it was already, I'd heard Lady Samantha and I thought it was a great song. I thought, this, this, this is great. But yeah. there he was, right in front of me, you know, saying, what are you doing? You've been here for an hour. Yeah. That was it. Strange times, but it was a, a thing I wouldn't change because Skinny Cat gave me that. Sure. impetus to go into those places and try one more time to, to get that deal, which, which never happened. But then you joined UFO, as you were saying uh, a, a minute ago, and uh, and it fell out. I mean, it fell out really badly with Phil Mogg. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit where you 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 actually end up thumping him on stage. Some days, some days we didn't fight. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what what was it about him that made him so uh, difficult? It was like a habit. It was, it was uh, looking back on it. I think I do say at the end of the in, in the book. No matter what, because I have a go all the way moaning and moaning and groaning about UFO. But I do yeah. say, but without UFO, I wouldn't have had that break and I wouldn't be writing this book, which is very true. And yeah. uh, Phil and I was just a balance of minds, really. And I think before me, he had been totally in, in control and doing exactly what he wanted to do within the setup. I started asking questions, you know. So, well, hang on, you know, we're working five nights a week. And what does the band get the night? 150 quid? And why, why do I get 15 pounds a week? <laughs> Don't ask questions like that. You know, I said, well, I am going to ask questions like that. And then we said, well, you'll get more money when we go to Germany. So shut, shut your face. And they would call me country boy because I was from down, you know, from down here. And they were all London. But they weren't even real Londoners either. You know, they were all from like... Uh, uh, Tottenham and uh, uh, oh, that's Gordon. real London. Oh, 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 Teddy on with Tottenham. North Londoners, but you know what yeah. I mean. Mate. They weren't they were Cockneys. No, okay. Yeah. And um, I, and but you see, I did it for all the wrong reasons. That they were signed to Chrysalis. They had agency management and a record deal, apparently. And they were going to Japan very quickly. And I thought, everything's you know and all the guys in skinny cars said you got to do this one you got to do yeah so i did and i didn't i knew musically it was a bad move you know i thought and i having them turn already said no to these other bands i could go into this pre-heavy metal band and i'm and i i'm trying to play like cool bb king stuff yeah it, it worked really <laughs> and uh i, I just but I, I think I say, you know, I went from being quite a big name in North Bucks to being fairly well-known in Northern Europe. Right. And that changed, that did change everything. I mean, but yeah. then I'd start getting a bit of a following because lead guitarists did, do. And my name started, the second German tour, they started putting UFO featuring me. Oh, that doesn't go down well. Oh, man, I had this terrible row going on in the promoter's office thinking, what's going on here? It was Phil and the promoter. He was moaning at the promoter for putting my name on the poster. And uh, I couldn't understand it because my naivety of coming from the countryside because I was very green still to the business. So hang on, we're in the same group here. It was like being in a soccer team. Don't pass him the ball. He might score kind of thing. And uh, he said, no, no, no. He said, we don't have any of that. We're, We're a group. And it went downhill pretty much. After that, no, he hit me in the face at the London School of Economics one night. I thought somebody had thrown. <laughs> I'd broken the string, and uh, we hadn't been getting on that well. And um, Supertramp, we're on the bill with Supertramp, Roger Hodgson. I mean, you couldn't have more chalk and cheese, honestly. 
soon yeah. come in the afternoon. We're apologising to each other if uh, the bass or the guitar was a little bit loud in their monitors. Yeah. Whereas if I'd have said that to Bob, he would have demanded another thousand watts yeah. to be in my monitor of him singing. That was the difference. Yeah. So during the game, the sound was going. I broke the string and I didn't have tech in those and I changed the guitar within about twenty seconds. You know, unplugged it, put the spare on, and I felt this thing hit me on the side. <laughs> I thought somebody had thrown something from the stage, and I, it, it really hurt a little bit after a while. I started to well up a bit, and um, I looked across at Pete, the late Pete Wabler, and I. And I'll, we're still playing in the middle of some boogie in G or A or something, just on and on and on. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, sat, and I'm looking at him, mouthing him, just hit me. And Pete Way is crying with laughter, going, doing this. <laughs> so I took this little Les Paul Junior, which was a very sturdy little guitar. And while Phil was at the microphone, I slammed it across the shoulders with it like this. And he went down the microphone, still singing professionally. <laughs> but we never did have a real bad fallout after that again. But I didn't stay with the band that long after that either. <laughs> but, um, I saw Michael Shanker the first time around, and he was amazing. And I, I was the one who said, this is the guy you should have in the band. And then Phil Moore said, we don't look at support groups. <laughs> but we've seen each other many times since, so we're fine. So I think the next band was was Wild Turkey, Glenn yeah. Thorndick's Wild Turkey, I was yeah. a, a former member of Jethro Tull, yeah. and I was intrigued by your account of touring with Wild Turkey, which you, you used to get around in a Chevrolet. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss wow nice yeah what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on bomba socks underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds yeah that plush and the best part for every item you purchase bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Is that right? Indeed, yeah. Six, uh, three seats in the front, three seats in the back. Plenty, plenty of room for uh, illicit verbal. Yeah. But uh, still stayed in the most kind of low-rent 
kind of big breakfast, didn't you? Kind of most. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, hang on, Mr. <laughs> and Mrs. Smith. Uh, yeah, bed, bed and breakfast and stuff, stuff like that. And and sometimes we'd, we'd look at, we'd pull up outside of uh, our supposed night stop and go and look at each other and go, nah, we just keep going and go straight to Glasgow or something or whatever. We drove to, I think we we drove to Madrid overnight before we left London. We just started in London and got to three in the afternoon, and he, he, Glenn never stopped. But Glenn is the man who turned me on to Frank Zappa, uh, and that's so that's a that was a turning point in my life as well. You know, Glenn was a lovely guy. He was very great bass player and very knowledgeable, and also was probably responsible for starting me off on the uh, guitar collecting as well. But uh, it was a wild time. But Turkey, we, we were in Spain when when Franco was. Oh, he has a Very much in charge. Of course. Yeah. You can imagine, 1974, hair down. Well, oh, sorry about that. I'm a haircut for this, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, we noticed. <laughs> 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 touched. <laughs> lockdown, lockdown. And um, they, uh, we were wandering around. We, they had the, uh, secret, say, secret, well, they weren't very secret police. They had people following us around everywhere. <laughs> because I think we were, T-shirts say yeah, secret police. Yeah. yeah. So we, we stopped on the way back from uh, Paragotha, one day it was about 110 degrees. Stopped for a beer at a hacienda place or whatever, and we took the beer outside, and that gave us that gave them the chance to arrest us because we took beer onto the street. And the next thing is, one of them was a Jethro Tull fan, and uh, we ended up instead of being arrested, we ended up with a police escort into the next town. To do the <laughs> you couldn't—I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. The guy was humming. Uh, living in the past and going just for true, just for true. Moving on, I just want to ask you about somebody, somebody you, you knew and worked with a bit later on um, but as a session man, which is Mickey Most. Yeah. Uh, and you say you kind of learned more from Mickey Most than most people. Is that is that fair to say? I, I, I think I learned more about making records from Mickey Most than anybody. Because to watch him at work, a, a guy who wasn't very talented musically, um, you know, he had, he had the instruments and he had the know-how, but in the studio, to make a record that was going to be played on the radio, uh, I've never come across anybody like him since, really. I mean, I, mean, I wasn't in and out of the studio with all the great producers of our time, but I would say he must have been one of the best. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and he was a guy who either... A bit of a Marmite guy, I think. You know, talk to, talk to Jeff Beck about him and you probably get a whole different story. But, you know, he was always very pleasant to me and he, he hired me for a lot of sessions. Yeah, you uh, play on uh, You Sexy Thing by Hot Chocolate, didn't I you? Believe so. yeah, I believe so, yeah. Because we did backing tracks. And um, he, he would say, uh, Bernard, I'll, I'll come and pick you up from your, your flat in, in, in London, in, in Devonshire Terrace I used to live. And he had a Rolls Royce. Uh, and in those days, he had a phone in his car. Oh, yes. I mean, it yeah, was yeah, so yeah. impressive, man. And for, he, to, for him to come and get me, you know, I, I mean, this was just Mickey, you know. Go on, Bernard, I'll, I'll come pick you up four o'clock. Because he had a mobile studio uh, pretty much parked up uh, in the front part of his garden at the house. So that's where I would go with him. But sitting in this car, listening, watching him pick up a phone to talk to his wife about, I'm on the way home, was, was amazing, you know. Yeah, it was. And then he would say, well, we'll go in the studio. And there was a load of backing tracks. And I didn't know whether it was, you know, he had so many acts signed to rack. But I was pretty good with, you know, and I've been listening to a lot of stuff with, uh, you know, Motown stuff. And I, 
I liked the rhythm, and I was pretty good with the wire wire stuff. And he got me on all that stuff. And then only I mean, afterwards, years later, I think it was a dead Patrick Olive from uh, Hot Chocolate said to me, "You said, well, you played on most of the records. You, know? <laughs> you didn't really? know. I didn't know. No, no I, I think I definitely played on um, Heavens on the Back Street of a Cadillac or something like that. Right. And uh, uh, Emma, I think. But and there's and I know that I, but I didn't do the famous guitar part you said to think. I think I was with I was the ribbon guitar part under us. I would remember doing that. Right. Uh, that that was almost certainly you know the guy from Hot Chocolate. But I played on other songs that uh, I, I still don't really know what they were. Probably Racy and uh, did I do some Susie Quattro? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think she had different producers, but you never knew her, Mickey, because he would just say, "I think this one's in A, this one's in G, this one's you know whatever," and there were no top lines, very rarely. Right, he was a great bloke to be around. He was funny, man, because he'd come from that fifties era as well, uh, and he would toured with those package tours in, in the sixties. Yeah. And he, you know, and I, and I just gravitated towards sitting with him on the bus and stuff, or in his car, and chatting about him. He was, I wish, you know, these days you could put the phone on and record everything, but uh, he was a. I, I really, really liked him, and I, 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 you know, I, I like the idea that he had a butler, didn't he? Oh, that's good. <laughs> that was the day where one of the days he phoned his wife and he said, I've, I've got Bernie for dinner. And he took me, and, and it must have, obviously the lines must have been so bad. And the only Bernie she knew was, wasn't me. But when I got there, a butler opened the door and said, Good evening, sir. And, and Mickey was looking down, what? And he, he said, You better go in the studio. So I went into the mobile and then back into the house. And the table was all laid out with lovely candelabra and stuff and his wife came down who was a delight and lovely 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 lady and uh, he said oh this is my wife uh, Mrs. Bernie and her face went can I work me <laughs> she's obviously crestfallen was she <laughs> well yeah I hated to disappoint her and I love her to this day but uh, <laughs> the only Bernie she knew was Severna Delphon <laughs> So she dressed up and <laughs> she dressed up and everything. Got the tomfoolery on. Yeah. <laughs> and the butler was like, "Good evening, sir." And it got so bad, I, yeah. and I, I was kind of embarrassed. And they were laughing their heads off to the eternal credit. They were so funny. She, yeah, particularly, she never and she never took the tiara off. And um, it was really, really funny. She said that there was a plate glass door in this dining room, and they told me about ten times, "Be careful," but I had too much to drink. And I went smack into the player and ended up with a shiner up here. And she said, you, you know, you, you have to stay the night because you can't drive home or whatever the hell. And she looked after me like a, like a nurse. And I loved, loved her from that day to this. And it was one of those. And now I was told that he dined out on that story. For quite a bit, so <laughs> but yeah. Mickey Mouse is a classic example of he's got it flaunted, wasn't it? It's kind yeah. of, yeah, yeah. butler. Massive house, yeah. Rolls Royce with a phone in it. You know, yeah, it's amazing. I couldn't. I mean, I just got, I got my Levi's on, Levi J, hair down, what's And uh, no, this is Bernie, and her face was just like, "Can I have a word?" It was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> "That's lovely." It's yeah, a sitcom. Good, sitcom. It is. It is. Yeah. Tell that. I suppose the transitional moment in your career is when you joined Pace Ashton Lord. Is that fair to say that you kind of move yeah. up to the? The first got, division got, there, really. The first division really was playing with Cozy Powell after Wild Turkey. Right. Uh, Cozy was such a great player. You know, as musician-wise, it was a, such a step, two steps up instead of one or three or whatever. 
And he was a big influence on me, especially with the the Mickey situation, because it was his hit record that introduced me to Mickey. But his attitude to the business also had a lot of effect on me as well. It was like a very much a, come on, let's get on with it. All right, yeah, we're in the studio, so Oh, yeah, so, 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 okay, that's Carl Palmer over there. Who cares? You know, he was one of those kind of guys. He liked Carl Palmer, but, you know, it was, everybody was the same to Coast. And um, he instilled in me that kind of get on with it business uh, in the studio rather than being too precious about, you know, spending months and months to get the drum track right. He was very much getting there at 12 o'clock and let's be out of there by two. Right. And he was a guy who was very influential on calling around and making sure that you did the right job. So he would then say to me, I've got this gig for you. And it was Pace Ashton Lord. And I was more terrified of not getting the gig and having to tell him than not getting the gig. But as it happened, I did get the gig. So that was all right. And that was, a big, again, another step because working with John and Ian was, was just a, another two rungs at a time. Tony was a different thing. Tony I was going to say, tell us about Tony. You did a certain amount of driving Tony from the pub to the gig, <laughs> didn't you? Or, yeah, only every day. Yeah, I was the one tasked with getting them to the rehearsals, and they would. I would go to the Richard Steels, which I think uh, is uh, still up on Haverstock Hill, and getting them out of there every day was 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 a game, just a game. And all his mates, his drinking partners, and there were writers. Um, uh, TV pre- yeah. producers, actors, and everybody was against me. And they, the, the names they used to call me when I used to arrive with the car to go in and get him. I mean, you wouldn't believe they were disgraceful, really. You, know, you really are a really nasty little twit, aren't you? And the, the, the Ronald Fraser was the word, the actor Ronald Fraser. I mean, I hated that man for no other reason than he was horrible to me. You know? And uh, I'd take him down there and drive down thinking I'm going to get such a rollicking now from John because we're two hours late. And they say, no, he said, that every day, the fact that you get in here is a miracle. Tony was just an a, a absolute mission on his own. It was, and why I was in pay session Lord was only because he was John's mate, really. You know, I mean, you think about it, you've got John Lord playing keyboard. You really need another keyboard player. No, that's true. I think so. I mean, look at me and go, oh, noise. You know, <laughs> and I said, what am I, what am I supposed to do, you know? And you want to say, take no notice on him, dear boy. Take no notice on him. You know, Casey just laughed in the corner. So Casey Ashton Law went into, uh, you know, third gear and ended up in fifth gear, totally out of control with nothing to do. And uh, we did five shows in Great Britain, five. And uh, we went back to Munich to do a second album and uh, it was all over. But in that interim period, I'd met David Coverdale. Right, right. Well, so that's the big connection. So tell us about that. It's just it's there are bits that are just comic, really, aren't there? There's the there's the uh, the Love Hunter the controversy over the Love Hunter sleeve with the snake and the naked girl, or there's a bit where you go to Graceland and things. I started to think, well, when you watch Spinal Tap, how did you feel? Do you think you'd live this movie? <laughs> Nobody laughed. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> That's Black Sabbath. Yeah. That, that actually happened. Oh, no, we did that. No, it was no. Spinal Tap. To most, I think you'll talk to anybody from my generation of players in rock band, and nobody found that film very funny at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a great film now. I do say it's hysterical, but you know, they. I mean, they nailed it so well that that uh, people did think it was real, and I suppose in a way it, it was real. You know. Um, <laughs> 
But when you saw the sleeve of Love Hunter, well, famously, what did you think? as a naked woman astride the large snake, did did you think, oh, that could be a problem? <laughs> What's wrong with being sexy? What year is it? Who am I? Do you know, oh, the honest truth to that, and honestly, um, what do they say? The first one is, I'll tell you honestly, and that means it's the first lie. But no, only David Rillis ever saw that scene. Right. None of us even saw. I never saw the cover to um, Trouble, Love Hunter. I never knew that until uh, two years afterwards that the picture of me on Ready and Willing is the same as the one of me on Trouble. That's how much interest the rest of us really took in the in the artwork. It was not David's thing, really. And, uh, you know, he was the one dealing with all the, uh, the lyrics and he was the one dealing with journalists, especially female journalists, who, who took, you know, some offence, well, and in some cases, frightened I mean, say, well, you're the one who recorded Lie Down, I Think I Love You. And I said, well, yeah, but it was every much, you know, with David's stuff, it was all very tongue-in-cheek. And it was done as a bit of fun. It wasn't meant, I think, to, uh, you know, put anybody down or look for a reason to be controversial. We, we weren't that clever enough, I don't think. <laughs> it looked like they were, they've done it again, you know. And then we, then it, we fell into the trap because Come and Get It came out. And then there was a controversy with that. And then the Americans changed the artwork. And, it, well, they've done it again. You know, it was, again, none of us really... In fact, I've been in touch with somebody only recently who did the artwork for Come and Get It. And um, that original has gone missing. So, But I, I, we never had a great deal to do with the cover. So in answer to your question, really, you know, Love Hunter, I'm, I was more interested in what was inside the cover. Than no, the okay. Cover. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you 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 co-wrote one song. Well, you probably co-wrote more than one song, but you, there's one particular song from that era that has kind of outlasted that era. Mm. Uh, t tell us about that and how important that's been to you and to your career. You mean Here I Go Again? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Here I Go Again, I, I wrote uh, for the last, what turned out to be my last White Snake album. Ironically, it turned out to be the last track we recorded as well, funnily enough. Um, I, it was put together at my old house, which is, isn't five minutes from where we're sitting now. But I put a demo together on my old Revox, and, and I had a cassette of it. And I knew that there was something good about it, and I wanted to play it today. We got to Clearwell Castle, and I sort of kept thinking, well, should we work on this, and I'll get this together a bit better, and... So I worked on it a bit more, and only towards the end of the first sessions down there, I took it one Saturday afternoon, it was, and um, I played it to him, and he, I sang it through the chorus, and I sang through this piece to the point where it goes from a kind of a minor to a major thing, so it goes from into a positive kind of side. And he just really liked it, and he said, oh, I'm going to rewrite some of this, because I had an idea for the chorus, an idea for some, well, I think the second verse was the original first part, and stuff like that. But you know, that was the deal we had, him and I, you know, if we were in a room together, that we were a song together. And he disappeared up into his room at Clearwell Castle. And uh, only, I think, that was about five o'clock, came back down all motivated and said, what do you think of this? He more or less had it finished. I think we recorded it a couple of days later. But it was only me, uh, John, Ian and David, and uh, uh, there's only four of us on the track. And John Lord heard the intro I played on 
little figure on the guitar, and, and he looked at me and said, "Play that again." <laughs> I said, "What this?" I played it to him, and uh, he said, uh, "You're a clever little sod, aren't you?" He said, "That's a, <laughs> that's a hook." He said, "That's a real hook, and I'm going to play that on the Hammond organ." So I gave in immediately because it was the great John Lord. Uh, he didn't argue with John. He, didn't, he never wanted to. He was such a huge mentor to me, and. Um, we recorded it, and it was a hit over here, and it did okay. And then the band broke up, and five years later, or whatever, uh, it's re-recorded with the new all-American White Snake, and um, goes to number one. And the rest is uh, writing books. <laughs> It always, fascinates, it always fascinates me, Bernie, because I've, I've tried this with numerous musicians. You can have long careers, you do loads of things, loads of different things. In the end, it's one song. Mm. Is that mm. true in your case? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean if, you, if you break it down, if you break it down, even, not just even monetary-wise, if you break it down into what people talk about or what they know you for, you say, well, I'm a guitar player, and I was in this band, but he's the guy who wrote Here I Go Again, yeah. you know, and or he's the guy who wrote Here I Go Again and with David Coverdale because, you know, we're, we're equal on it and whatever, and that's such I'm, I'm proud to be involved in. And you always want, as a writer, you want to have, you want to be as successful as possible as a writer. And the thought of being number one in America yeah, yeah. was a, is, is the dream of pretty much every musician you'll ever talk to from this side of the Atlantic. And there it is, you know, we're up there and we're, we're number one. We being, me and him as the writers. And there's there's a lot of people, a great, a great deal many people in, in, in America who don't know I was ever in Whitesnake. But there's also a great many people who do. And as such, I've managed to be out of Whitesnake for twice as long as I was ever in it. And here we are talk, talking about it because it, it, it's still relative in, in my in my career, because I have to I don't have to play. I enjoy playing. If I play, you know, whether it's a still a three, you know, three thousand festival or a ten thousand festival, or I go into one of the book clubs, you know, with with one hundred and fifty people, you know, if you don't play it, they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have no, to not, play it the way it was made as well. I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not asking you to tell me how much money you made out of it. But does does it still pay now, many years later, even in the era of streaming and so forth? Uh, not so much from the streaming. That's got to be sorted as, uh, from a writer's right. point of view. Uh, but Here I Go has been one of the great synch synchronization songs uh, for movies and campaigns. And, uh, no, I, I have to, uh, you know, it's been very good to me and uh, given me everything I... I've been able to do post being in the band because most of my contemporaries, you know, a lot of guys, much superior musicians or guitar players to me or whatever, but who didn't write anything during their tenure, you know, as 25 to 35 year olds in a band who, you know, with this pandemic, for instance, the last year and a half, two years, you know, I really do feel for them because they're still gigging out there five days a week and relying on their, on their gigs. Those gigs are disappearing. I, I, I don't have to really go out and do anything. I still enjoy doing the gigs when I play them, but, you know, the royalties and the success of Whitesnake post my being part of it also is obviously added because the sales of that record anyway went through the roof to start with in America when it was yeah, number yeah. one. And it was number one, I think, uh, in three different versions all over the world. 
And um, it's, you know, Steve Lukather is really funny. He's, he calls it mailbox money. You know, the, you know, as we're speaking today, it's been on the radio in America probably got 500 times. Really? Yeah. Wow. yeah. Mailbox money. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That is. I've never heard that one. Oh, that yeah. must be. But you must also think just how lucky that you played it to David Coverdale and presumably he was in a certain mood to be receptive and then you played it to yeah. John Lord and John Lord go, that's a hook. Yeah. And it's it's all the little rea human reactions, yeah. isn't it, that it, turns into a, something. We, we have a similar thing. With, on every album, something, there's a spark. We did it on, on Love Hunter with a song called Walking in the Shadow of the Blues. That one stood the test of time really well. Fourthly Loving was the first White Snake hit. Fourthly Loving was the BBC's, uh, you know, we play rock music. No, you don't. We play White Snake, and now we got away with that for a while. And that was a, that was a big hit. Fourthly Loving was, you know, that was the breakthrough one. Really, Ready and Willing was the breakthrough album. But people remember Donington Park and already with thirty-five thousand people. But also there were people, two hundred people at Lincoln Tech when we began. When, when we were called dinosaurs and I was 26 years old. Right. You know, the whole punk thing was, was going on. And, you know, what, how dare these old guys start new bands? You know, and I, was 20, I think I was 26. Yes. It was, that, was, that, that was remotely a threat, that. You always thought if you read the music press at the time, you know, there was the rise of ska, there was disco, yeah. there was punk rock, you know, there can't be a market for these old people playing kind of classic rock. No, no, I, I can't imagine that you were even remotely bothered by that. Never, never, never gave it a, a moment. No, no. no the, a punk to me was um, we were recording the Pace Ashton Lord album in Munich at the famous yeah. Land Studios. And just being there was a trip for me. You know, it's like this guy from the, the villages, you know. And they talk about we've got this punk music. And now and again, they, after being there for two or three weeks or whatever, somebody come over or somebody would fly over the movie maker or whatever. And we'd be reading your articles a lot, you know. And we read about this punk this and punk that. We said, well, punk is the guys in Clint Eastwood movies. Well, you know, make my day, punk. Because right. <laughs> we were sort of out there, away from it, in a bubble, really. Right. Because it, yeah. it was quite quick that went through like was summer of '76, was it? 70, 77 yeah, more, yeah, 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 77, yeah, yeah, 77. <laughs> and it was like, the punk. I remember saying to John, I think, was, what, what's all this punk business? And he said, I have no idea, dear boy. You know, <laughs> <That's> not, <laughs> I don't really care. I love, <laughs> I love your impersonations of John. I know also I, David. David's got a slightly posh accent, actually, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, 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 he seems to have a very, very, yeah, it's good. I think there's still a lot of northern boy in him, though. If you, if you yeah, yeah. you're making them both sound a bit like Keith Richards. No, I, I, there, <laughs> there was an era where there, there was Viv Stanchel, all that stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. There was an yeah, era where Rocky and Rose talked like that. My dear boy. They were like, they were like, they were like theatricals, weren't they? Yeah, like yeah, Donald yeah, yeah. Wolfitz or something like that. Yeah, but look, yeah, yeah. Bernie, that and millions of other tales are in Bernie Marsden's book, Where's My Guitar, which we heartily recommend It's really, uh, to really anybody good. Who's, who's enjoyed what we've been talking about. And, uh, and you know, when this bloody war is over, Bernie, you'll be out talking about it at bookshops and so forth and, and playing will. music once again. And then we'll, 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 we'll talk about the next one. Now that I'm a signed Harper Collins writer, as you will yeah, they, yeah, volume two. Yes, there you go. <laughs> good. I got to do, do something. 
Yeah, yeah. Look, it's been lovely talking to you. Great Thanks to very you. much for your time. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Yeah.